We'll go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to pick up in our series. And as you're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'll say that I think this is one of uh, probably the most important um, sermon passages, sermons that a, a church can hear, needs to hear, um, is what we have here today. And it's because it's talking about the importance of healthy leadership within the church. And I know on the onset of what can happen is you hear that and you're saying, okay, it's talking about leaders. It's going to be talking about qualifications of leaders within the church. How does that apply to me? Like, you mean yourself. Like how do, I understand, Jeremy, how like, this was something that you need to read and the elders need to read and understand. But like, how does this apply to me? And, one big overarching reason is is because it's the the leaders, it's the congregation itself that is responsible for choosing the leadership of the church. It's the the church that is responsible for choosing and understanding who should lead the the church. You know, if you're unfamiliar with the way kind of we we practice things and do things here, it's we're an elder led, congregationally affirmed, kind of governed church which means that the congregation chooses the elders based upon these qualifications, votes as a as members of the church, vote to put men in place to serve in this role of, of elder, um, and then also in the roles uh, of, of deacons as which we'll look. Which means it's important, it's imperative that the congregation, the members of the church, know what these qualifications are. But the reason that Paul is writing this letter and including this in his letter to Timothy here is because what's taking place in Ephesus is they've got a whole bunch of unqualified elders serving within their church, a whole bunch of unqualified leaders serving within the church. And we think back about our church life and our church backgrounds. We're all coming from different places, every single one of us. And some of you, by God's grace, you have come out of some healthy church environments. Praise God for that. Pray, pray, give time today to give thanks and praise God for those leaders who have brought you to that point in, in your life and where you're at today. Praise God for them. But at the same time, there are many of us who have also if, if, if experienced and at least witnessed unhealthy church leadership. And we've seen the devastating effects that that can have. And Sadly, some of you, by conversation that I have had, are still wrestling with and overcoming wounds and scars that have been in place for sometimes years now because of bad church leadership experiences in your past. And I'm sorry that that's the case. It's not designed to be the case. God never intended for church hurt to be a part of the equation. So how do we fix that? We can't just go out and by and large and say, okay, we're going to fix every church and every situation, though I wish we could. <laughs> but we focus on one church at a time. We focus on, on Harvest Point, and we say, okay, we want to do everything that we can to, to make sure that we are entrusting and having qualified leaders to, to lead the church. So what makes this message so hard for me to preach today is, is a sense that it is a constant gut check every time that I read this passage. It's like, do I meet these qualifications? And it's not enough for me to have a self-evaluation saying, yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I feel comfortable with this. 
It's a responsibility for the other elders. And just FYI, if you're not familiar, we have three elders total within this church right now. Myself serving in this capacity. We, we have Brian Gash right over here. And we have Patrick Cook who is in the back. So we have th- three elders who are, who are leading this church. And so as you're listening today, I want to put a, a challenge to you. I want to, I want to challenge you to, to, one, be praying for God to, to raise up more leaders within the church. And two, to do an evaluation of us as your elders. To say, do we meet these qualifications? No doubt there are plenty of these areas that we need to continue to grow in. But if we fail to meet these qualifications then we no longer need to serve as the elders of this body. This is the reality of what we have before us. This is not an area of where we compromise. This is why it is a constant gut check. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for, for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their, their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this text today, as we prayerfully come and approach and ask the questions that are found within this text. Lord, I pray that we will be a church that will will have and will continue to produce and continue to raise up godly leaders who fit these qualifications. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're going to do today is basically we're just going to walk straight through the text thought of all different ways of how to approach this text, how to break it down, how to make it simple. Uh, and and the, I think the easiest thing to do is just kind of verse by verse, qualification by qualification, is just to, to walk through this text. And what we see right out of the gate is two sections. You have one section talking about overseers, the next section is talking about deacons. You've got two offices that God has designed in his blueprint to lead the church. So he says, okay, we're going to have leadership in the church. This is how it's going to be designed. And you're going to have the office of, of overseer, which is the exact same thing, word, meaning elder or pastor. It, that's the same office there. So anytime you see that, if you're reading through Scripture, you see the word elder mentioned, it's referring to an overseer. If you see the word pastor mentioned, it's referring to elder and overseer. It, it's all the, the same office. They're not separate offices there. So 
I am your pastor. Brian is your pastor. Patrick is your pastor. We are all pastors of, of Harvest Point Church. So when we're looking here at the qualifications of overseers, we're looking at men who oversee the church. Now, you heard me say the, the word man, and we're not going to go into great detail there. But if you look back to chapter 2, what we looked at last week, if you were not here last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message for a more in-depth understanding of why men are qualified for this office. But if you saw in verse 12 in chapter 2, he said, Paul said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then he follows that with saying, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And then what we have there is, he's saying, okay, women are not to teach or have authority. What he's talking about is in the public proclamation of the gospel in this type of setting, of communicating sound doctrine to the congregation as a whole, which is the role of an elder or, uh, or pastor in, in that situation. And he's saying, okay, the reason for that is rooted in the creation order. Adam was created first to be the head, both the head of the church and the head of the house. And then Eve was created second to be the helper. Both, both men and women created equal in value and dignity, but God giving them specific distinct roles within the home and in the church to function the way the blueprint is in, designed to function for, for the home and the church. So now, with that understanding, we're going to come with the assumption, because anywhere in Scripture where we see elder mentioned, or overseer mentioned, it is always a male. So we're going to say in here a series of questions, and I may not say them all, but there are going to be a series of questions that are going to come up here that we're going to say, okay, is he qualified for? And the first one that we look here is, if anyone aspires for the office of overseer. So the question is, is he aspiring to be an elder? And it kind of sounds like, huh? Like you would think there might be the opposite. You don't want somebody who wants this, right? You don't want somebody who's trying to, to grab at, I want to hold a position of, of leadership within the church. But it's not talking about someone who's wanting this for selfish gain. They're not wanting this so they can be able to have influence and power and lead the church and make things work the way they want them to work. The aspiration comes from a calling to desire to preach the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, a calling to lead the church through the teaching ministry of the church. It is a calling that is deep down within the bones of like, I want to, I desire to do this, whether professionally or lay leader within the church rising up. It is a long to, to do this. There's an aspiration for this because when times get difficult, and, and leading a church, it, it can be difficult because you're dealing with people. <laughs> and sometimes it can get messy, it can be hard, and you've got to have firm decisions and those type of things. And when that happens, if you've got somebody who's not called to this, you've like had to twist their arm and say, hey, man, we really need somebody to fill this role. I think you would be a really good guy to fill this role. And they're not aspiring to this. They don't desire this, but you're like twisting their arm and you're like, okay, I'll do it because I'm a nice guy. I'll step in. I'll fill this role. Maybe fit every other qualification, but they're not aspiring to this. When those difficulties come, they're not going to stick around. They're not going to find joy in the ministry. They're going to find it a burden, not a blessing. 
So one that comes is they have to aspire to this. It's a noble task. It's a good thing. We want to raise up and see men within this body aspiring to be elders. I would long for that to be the case. Then we move on to some specific qualifications. He says, therefore, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach. So we ask, is the man above reproach? It doesn't mean is he sinless? If that was the case, nobody would serve as an elder. <laughs> I mean, you have no sinless people on this planet other than Christ himself. You will never have a, a sinless elder. What it's asking is, is there anything that in his life that somebody can make a credible accusation against him that's going to harm the witness of the gospel? It's going to harm the witness of the church. Is his life, for all intents and purposes, is it a life that is being lived above accusation, above reproach? And we follow that with a series of things to kind of help describe what above approach is. And so we look there and it says the husband of one wife. Now, I could camp here for like the entire rest of the service um, and then probably follow up with part two and three of this up the next coming weeks. We're not going to do that. We don't have time to do that here. But what we see from this text is the husband of one wife. Now, what this is not doing, it is not forbidding a single man from serving as an elder. But it is saying if he is married, at the bare minimum, he must be completely faithful to his spouse. No hint of, of uh, infidelity there. He has to be living completely faithful to her, a one-woman man. Now, the question then comes in that always circles around, rightfully so, is what about divorce? What if a man has been divorced? And that's where we could spend, again, a great amount of time. If you were here during our Mark series, or if you haven't been, I would refer you back to a sermon out of Mark chapter 10. Listen to that one. Because basically, to answer that question, you have to come back and say, okay, does the Bible give biblical reasons for divorce? And or not. And there's strong cases that it does, and there's strong cases that it doesn't. And if it doesn't, then it's saying exactly that the husband of one wife can't be remarried after the divorce. I don't think that would apply to a widower, but in that case, that was the case. If it's saying that there are biblical reasons for a divorce, then if those being after adultery or the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse, then they would have to fall within those qualifications there. But above all of this, before we dive into all the minutiae about what about this and what about that, we have to ask, is this man's marriage, is this man's life, regardless of the circumstances there, is it above reproach? And that's a big overarching question to ask in that setting. And again, we could spend a lot of time here. But is it above reproach? And then it follows that with sober-minded. Is he sober-minded? Is he clear-minded? Is he thinking clearly, acting clearly, possessing sober, clear thoughts? Is he self-controlled? Self-control, does he have control over his impulses, his thoughts, his words, his, his actions? Like, does he think before he speaks? And ties very closely with sober-mindedness. With then ties very closely with, is he respectable? Is he a respectable person? It's the exact same word that we see in chapter 2 being referred to a woman's clothing. 
You know, it's being respectable, the appearance that we're putting forth. And if he's not sober-minded and he's not possessing self-control, then he's probably not being a respectable, respectable man. Is he hospitable? I think this goes beyond just saying, hey, we have people in our home. Anytime we see the word hospitality used, hospitable used throughout the Bible, it's always being referred to, by and large, to aliens and sojourners. Aliens and strangers, those who are different from us. Like, is, is he, is his family open and hospitable to those who are different than them? Those who think differently, act differently, look differently. Are, are they open to these things? Is it evidence in their life? I mean, we just look around this room right here. And by and large, we, we, or we, we all somewhat look alike, not all of us, but all of us are coming from various different backgrounds. We're not all alike, and we extend in our neighborhoods, and we're definitely not all alike. And if a man is not hospitable, then how is he going to be an effective disciple maker of all nations, of all peoples? As Paul's aim in chapter 2 is we want the gospel to, to be to all peoples, to make Christ known to all peoples. So he has to be hospitable. Is he able to teach? And this is a biggie. This is the one that sets this apart from deacons um, in, a, in a big way. This is what we're looking back in chapter 2, teaching with the authority, teaching the sound doctrine, the scriptures with the authority. He has to have the ability to teach. He can have every one of these other qualifications, but if a man does not have the ability to teach the Bible, not talking about if he has the ability to teach history or science or math, does he have the ability to teach the Bible? He has to. And what does that mean, to have the ability to teach the Bible? Does it mean that he has to be able to stand up in the pulpit and to preach the Word? No. Some will. Some will be able to be public speakers. Some will be fantastic public speakers. Some will be so-so public speakers. That's not the difference. They, can, they, can they lead a small group? Can, can they lead and teach one-on-one setting to articulate in a fruitful way, in a consistent and clear way, the truths of the Bible? When they hear false teaching, is it going to ring true of like, that's not right? And then they're going to be able to help correct that false teaching. If a man cannot, is not able to teach the Bible, he is not qualified to be an elder. Next is he cannot be a drunkard. doesn't say that he cannot drink, partake in alcohol, but it says clearly you cannot be drunk. Drunkenness cannot be in the equation. Again, that would not be living above reproach. That would definitely impair sober-mindedness. And I find it very interesting that it follows right after able to teach. <laughs> he goes, able to teach, not a drunkard. So you're know, like, guys in the pulpit there in Ephesus, you can't be drunk while you're teaching. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a problem that he's dealing with specifically here in this church. And then flowing right out of drunkenness is cannot be violent. Because what does drunkenness often equate with? Violence can't be in the equation. Now, we often think of violence, and we think of somebody who is physically abusive, don't we? But I have seen way too many pastors be verbally abusive from the pulpit, 
and bullies from the pulpit. That's where that, kind of that righteous anger wells up. Like a protecting of the sheep and I see other congregations being harmed. And it's like, that is not right. If that has ever happened to you, I'm sorry. It should never, ever be the case that any pastor uses the platform of authority to be a bully in any capacity. This is humble, Christ-focused leadership. This is not self-centered glorification. He has to be gentle. Look at that. But gentle. Gentle. Like a shepherd. Shepherd can, like, he's going to come strong and protect his sheep, right? You got wolves coming, he's going to come strong. But then he's dealing with sheep. He's going to be gentle and loving towards those sheep. You're not going to crush and break the bruised reed. You're not going to have somebody who's, who's just they're struggling to hold on. <laughs> that flame is just continuing to barely flicker. You know, when, when the wax is right there and the flame is just kind of just trying to hold on and you're like, it's not going to make it. If any wind comes along, it's going to knock it out. Sometimes you feel that way, don't you? And what, a, what an elder cannot do is he can't come along and blow that flame out. <laughs> he needs to come along and help build it back and to encourage and exhort, correct, but gently, patiently, lovingly. Can't be quarrelsome. Is he quarrelsome? I mean, that's the problem in chapter 2 with the men and their prayers in the church, right? It's got anger and quarreling. He's like, can't do that. <laughs> can't be that way. Not a lover of money. Is he a lover of money? Later on in this text, towards the end of this letter, he's, Paul is going to tell us that, that money is the root of all evils. And he's not saying money itself is evil, but it can cause evils because it's greed and selfishness and it takes away from the sacrificial giving that, that God has commanded for his church. You know, a lot of times, too, we, we think of this and say, oh, uh, you can't go into the ministry for the money. <laughs> Like other than a couple folks on TV, I mean, there's more than a couple. But I, I don't know of very many pastors in circles that I'm running with that are saying, hey, we're going into the ministry for the money. Uh, that's, that's not what, what, what they're focused on, on here. But I think also what we forget is we want to equate this to paid pastors. And it's not just equated to paid pastors. We have two of our pastors who are working full-time jobs and then coming and doing other responsibilities on top of this. Like, praise God for them in what they're doing. But what they cannot be, what none of us can be, is being like greedy for dishonest gain. Like, I'm wanting the, the money. I'm doing what I, I have for the money. Are they being sacrificial with their giving? Are they being sacrificial with their time? But specifically here, are they, are they focused on their jobs for the money? Or being able, a leverage to be able to do the work of ministry. All of these things. We can spend so much time talking about, as you can tell. And I'm happy to answer questions as we go forth. But we move on to, to verse number four. And the question, he, he must manage his own household well. Basically, is he an elder in his own home? Is he being an elder first in his home? Teaching his family. He says, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
Is, is he being an elder within the home? Are his children honoring him? Is his family honoring him? Why does that matter? He tells us in verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Basically, he's saying, okay, he's paralleling, equating the, 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 the home and the church to say, this is the training ground. If you're not able to lead the home well, teaching and leading the home, then what gives any indication that you're going to be able to do that with, within the church? You can't. You've got to look to the home. We have to look to the home first. And so this is why I, I, I look and I ask the question, of, like, you have to, to talk to a pastor's wife. You have to ask her, okay, is, is he meeting the qualifications in the home? And on, on top of that, is she on board with him serving in this role? Is she supportive of this? Is this the time of season where like things are just cut thin at home and she's like, I, I know that's important, but man, our children are going crazy right now. And I don't mean like four-year-old crazy. I'm talking about like they're, they're in a spot in life where you just you do not have control over the home. I've had to talk with pastors. I've seen pastors. They say, okay, I've got to take a step back for a season because I cannot lose the home. I cannot. We lose the home. We lose the credibility in the church. Be the greatest pastor you want. People think all these great things, but if you lose the home, what have you gained? And that's where I am incredibly thankful to you as a congregation. When we, many of you knew that we were going on vacation back in August and We've experienced that in the past of, well, why are you going on vacation for? I thought you didn't really do a whole lot and this and that. I have never experienced that here. People here were like, excited for us to go on vacation and to get away. Thank you for loving our family the way you do. But I also always want you checking with Leslie and checking with the wives of these men. Let them give you honest answers. Because if I fail them, I most certainly will fail you. Number verse 6, he must not be a recent convert. Can't be a new Christian. I think it's self-explanatory there. But it tells us, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. I think one thing that we're guilty of in churches a lot of times is we get somebody who comes in, they come to faith in Christ, or they enter into the church, and we're like, oh man, they want to serve, and they want to be a part of this, and they're great here, and they're great there, and then we want to be like, okay, here's all this responsibility. And we're not giving a chance to, to test them, and to see them, and to evaluate their character, and to know, okay, is this new person going to stand up to the faith? Trials are going to come in their life. Are they going to continue to persevere in the faith? Are they? We need to be able to evaluate these things, to see these things. It, says, it tells us it could, could fall away, it could get puffed up, could be more than he can handle. This regardless of age, young or old. Recent convert cannot serve in this role. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not f fall into disgrace. So it's not enough just to ask, hey, who is he when no one's looking? We need to know who he is when everyone's looking. What is the reputation of, of this man, these men in the public eye, the community eye? Because when a pastor falls from grace, when a pastor's sins become public, and let's again remember, another 
Pastors are sinners just like everybody else. When we see egregious sins that are made public, it not only affects the pastor, it affects the church, but it not only affects the church, it affects the public witness of the church. And that's why men have to be held accountable to this. It's not just, okay, they're qualified, they meet this standard, now they're in. No, we're constantly evaluating. Do I today meet these qualifications? Move on, we look at the the qualifications of deacons. Now the word deacon literally means a servant. And we see here in these verses, there's a lot of commonality between the qualifications of, of a deacon and the qualifications of an elder. We're not going like, to double dip and talk about those in great detail. But it says deacons likewise. It's coming straight out of what we see with the elders. There's a likewise component here. But here they, they must be dignified. Well, what does that mean? It's not hoity-toity. It's somebody who carries respect. Are they a respectable person? Not double-tongued. So they're not talking out both sides of their mouth. They're not saying one thing to one person, another thing to somebody else. They're clear with what they're saying. Not addicted to much wine. Again, it's not forbidding alcohol. It's saying you can't be a drunkard. You've got to be mindful. Even if you are going to be taking a drink, not partaking in drunkenness, you need to be mindful enough of those around you to say, is this setting going to affect my gospel witness in any way, shape, or form? We need to know those things. We need to be mindful of that, mindful of what we put on Facebook, mindful of, of all these things. Not greedy for a dishonest gain. Again, tying back to the, not a lover of money. Not, not greedy here. They're going to be honest, ethical in what they're doing. They're working in a business, working in a, in, a, in a store here in town or wherever, office, community, government. Are they being ethical in what they're, what they're doing? They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, I think verse 9 is probably the most overlooked qualification of a deacon that there is. Because a lot of times, I remember growing up in settings, it was like, okay, this, this guy is a great servant. He mows the yards, and he fixes the pipes, and he does this, and he does that. And just all around, these people are helping in so many capacities within the church. And, and it's like, okay, they need, to be, they need to be our deacons. But then the question is, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Do they? And what is the mystery of the faith? It's the true essence of the Bible, the gospel. They know what was once hidden that is now revealed in Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He lived the life that we were supposed to live, died the death that we deserve to die, in order to give us a hope and a future we don't deserve to have. They know this, this gospel, they believe this gospel, and they're living out this gospel. Meaning, there's a component here where just like with elders, deacons have to know sound doctrine. They have to know the truth. Now, they don't have to be able to teach it in the way that elders do are required to. But there's still a teaching component here. There's still a component because if you come back to the bare essentials for any of us, what are we called to do with our own children? To teach them everything that God has commanded. Like Deuteronomy chapter 6, he's like, teach these things to your children. (laughs) We have to teach in our homes. 
In order to do that, we have to know the truth. Because if you're not teaching in your home, you're not leading the way God has intended for you to lead. There's, the, the, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So again, it's, it's faith, sound doctrine, and conscience in how we live. Are they living consistent with the faith? And I don't know about you, but I go back and I think about deacons who I've had in churches or when I was a kid or even where I have been on staff. And I'm like, okay, there have been some really good individuals who have served in those places, but not qualified. Because they do not know the gospel. Which is a whole other issue at hand of why they're even members of the church. <laughs> if they cannot articulate the gospel. Like you have to, if you're going to be saved by the gospel, you have to at least know the bare essentials of the gospel. And then we, we move on and we see and let them also be tested first. Again, you're, you want somebody that they're tested, they're proven, you've seen this. It's not like, hey, I want to be a deacon. Okay, you're going to come be a deacon. You just put them in place. In fact, this one doesn't have the, the aspiration here. You don't aspire to be a deacon. This is just something you're observing. Like you say, okay, these individuals are, are doing these things. We're observing this as a church. Because they're doing them so well, because they articulately know the gospel, we see the fruit here, we're going to, to give them this responsibility even more so as deacons because they have been tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Again, not sinless but above reproach. Now, we look at verses 8 through 10, and we say, okay, we can see how they fit pretty well with everything that we've seen with elders. We can say, okay, he, he's talking about the, the male deacons here, and then he turns and he says in verse 11, there are wives likewise. Now, this is where there is, tends to be confusion. Because if you look, depending on what translation you have, if you're reading from the ESV like I am, you're, you're seeing their wives likewise. If you're reading from the Christian Standard Bible, you're, re you're reading wives too, like wives also, wives likewise. If you're reading from the New American Standard Bible, you're reading and you're seeing women likewise. You're, you're, you're seeing the components there, and it's like, why is that the case? Why is there difference there? Why is there here in the ESV and not in the others? Well, because the definitive article, there, is not in the Greek. It's inferred. So a literal reading here is either one of two things. It's either wives likewise, like the Christian Standard Bible has it, or it's women likewise, as the New American Standard Bible has it. Either way, it's wives or women likewise. And that's confusing because it's the exact same word. <laughs> Like, it's trying to, like, which one's talking about here? And you have to look at context. So you're trying to, look at what does the context say to make me think it's either wives or women? And when we look at the context, we have to say, okay, why is he not talking about qualifications for elder wives? You notice that? When you look at verses 1 through 7, there's no qualifications for elders wives. But then you come down here, and it says women likewise, wives likewise. Why? Why is this the case? Well, some will, will say because there has to be these qualifications for the wives of, of deacons. Well, why not qualifications for the wives of elders? 
And so that's where I, I tend, based upon the context here, to say that it's wives, women likewise, women deacons likewise, must be dignified. Yeah, you've got to be respectful as well. Not slanderers like you have going on in the church of Ephesus. Not the gossip and the babbling that's taking place. You have to be sober-minded also. Clear-minded and faithful in all things. So he's talking about male deacons in verses 8 through 10. And then he says, women deacons likewise must be dignified. And he gives these qualifications here. He lays them out. Now, what we have to understand is that first he laid out a healthy plurality of male elders. Now, anytime again, just a note, we see elders within the scriptures, it's not only male, it's also in the plural. It's, a multi, it's more than one, and for good reason. <laughs> helps hold the church accountable, helps hold one another accountable. But it's, if you have a male, healthy, qualified plurality of elders then what Paul is doing here is saying that I believe is that women can serve as the role of deacon. But I believe what Paul is saying here specifically, he presumes that men are going to take the lead in this role. That men are going to take the, the role of leading through servanthood in the home and in the church. So basically, if we're going to say this in today's day and age paraphrase, it would be men get off the couch Quit playing the video games all the time and lead and serve your family from within the home and in the church. Take responsibility. Be men. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Serve her sacrificially. And then the, the church being who? The, the bride of Christ. Serve her sacrificially. Men step up in this role. But he is not forbidding women from, from doing this. He's not. I don't see that anywhere in the text. Because they were serving as deacons in that church in that period of time. And look at Phoebe in Romans 16.1. You can jot that down, go back. He's talking about Phoebe is a deacon. And then he says, this is the church that she is a deacon in. It is not just that she is serving. She is serving in that function. So we see that's laid out in Scripture. And so I think a healthy plurality of male leaders as deacons, as, as elders and overseers, and then you have both men and women able to serve in the role of deacon. And then you continue in verse 12. Let the deacons, he kind of goes back here to, to addressing the men, each be the husband of one wife. We've already talked about the same type of parallel there, managing their children and their households well, not managing the home well, not teaching within the home, not leading within the home, and you cannot serve as a deacon. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The reward for a deacon is not going to be often found in this earth. The reward for a faithful deacon comes in the next life. See, the, the, the deacons serve in such a capacity where they're not only meeting the physical needs of the church, 
the serving is helping support the teaching ministry of the church. And that comes from a lot of behind-the-scenes type of stuff. Whether it's the logistics of setting things up and tearing things down, whether it's the logistics of helping extend extend out to visiting those who are in need. But I also think there's a teaching component that comes into play from, from, from our deacons. And currently we have none. But there's a teaching component that comes into play here. Where it's not the, the public speaking and the preaching, but they're also the ones who are going to stand and say, I, I'm going to support the, the, the teaching of the church as long as that teaching aligns with Scripture. And they're going to know it well enough that they're going to be able to say, okay, if that doesn't sound right, I'm going to go to talk to the pastor. I'm going to see what, what's up here. But if they're in a small group or they're in a conversation out in the hallway and, and then they hear someone like saying, well, I don't know about this or they're saying something wrong or this, then the deacon is able to step in and squelch the gossip or answer questions and gently direct somebody to, to seek the answers that are needed if they don't have them themselves. It's supporting the teaching ministry of the church. But when we look at all of these qualifications, we can sit here and again, we can be like, okay, but how does it apply to me? How? Because in everything that Paul has looked at thus far, he's been talking about faith and conscience. You know, he he looked back in chapter two, chapter one, verse 19. He's telling them to wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. You got to know the sound doctrine. And that doesn't just apply to the elders and the leaders of the church. It, it applies to, to everybody in the church. You've got to know the truth if you're going to stand for the truth. You've got to know the truth if you're not going to be deceived by the truth. And you've got to be able to live out the truth. In order to live out the truth, you've got to know the truth. You want to know the truth and live lives that are consistent with the truth. It applies to absolutely all of us. And in order to protect the church in God's blueprint, he says, I love her enough and I'm going to give her leaders to help lead her in this time. And I'm going to give them distinct roles so it's going to function properly. And it's the church's responsibility to be able to help identify these individuals and to raise up these individuals to fill these roles. These qualifications, if you look at them, They're for all Christians. Again, minus the ability to, the qualification of having to be able to teach. What of any of these qualifications is, well, that is just for the super Christian. (laughs) Like, don't be a drunkard. Does that apply just to me? (laughs) It applies to all of us. Be sober-minded, hospitable, not quarrelsome. Not addicted. We, we just keep hitting on the wine. Like, don't be, be dignified. Be respectful. Don't be talking out both sides. This applies to all of us. But this is also not just a checklist like the law being misapplied. Going through, oh, I've done this, and I've done this, and i am do this. How is even any of this possible? It's not because we just know sound doctrine. It's because we've fixed our eyes upon Christ. The one the doctrine is speaking of, it starts with the faith. Faith in Christ. We're looking and saying, He is the servant. Like, flip over with me to Philippians, real quick. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. 
Verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, this is talking about Christ, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and in heaven, and on earth, and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we do with eyes fixed upon Christ, the image of the invisible God, is we're looking upon Christ in all of his humility, in his servanthood, because he was a deacon. He served and he taught gently, not breaking the bruised reed, not snuffing out the candle. Gently, loving, caring, boldly standing for the truth. Oh, church, if we fix our eyes upon the cross, we put our eyes upon Jesus do that, do that as a church, as a body, we will get leaders like this. It will happen naturally within the church. Not some through some, just some program or, or plan. It's just preaching the word, teaching the word, focusing our attention on Christ and seeing the Lord raise up men and women to fill these roles. Oh, church, but if we don't do that, if we don't hold to sound doctrine, we don't preach the truths of Christ, we have false doctrine entering in like the church in Ephesus, then you're not going to raise up healthy leaders within the church. And in turn, what you're going to have is an unhealthy church. And again, sadly, we are all too familiar with that throughout our culture. So as the, the band comes here in just a moment, what I want us to do right now is to bow our heads in prayer and to pray, yes, for, for godly leaders. But I want you to pray that your eyes and the eyes of your family members and the eyes of fellow members of this congregation, hearts, eyes, minds will be fixed upon Christ. Enamored, focused upon Christ above all else. We want Him with this insatiable hunger that we want more of Christ. Let's pray together that now. Father, we want more of you.
We want more knowledge of, of the truth uh, of your word. We want more knowledge, not just merely to puff up or to pass a test, but so we can worship. That we can stand firm in the midst of trial. That we can stand with confidence in a world gone mad and with unwaverable conviction say, these are the truths. This is where my faith stands. And it's rooted in Christ. Lord, I pray that you will raise up men and women throughout this congregation from our children upward, individuals who will stand for the truth of the gospel and will be so dramatically changed by these truths, by your work in their life, by the work of the Holy Spirit, though they will be living them out in good conscience. Not for self-glorification, but to glorify you Lord, may we be a church that is full of servants. Men and women who want to serve you and to make you known in the home and around the world. And yes, Lord, we pray for more, for more men to aspire to be elders. But Lord, I pray that we will be patient in our prayers, deliberate in our teaching, and Lord, that you will fan the flame in their hearts to aspire to this, to the teaching of your word, to the leading of your people. Lord, we ask all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.